Code. Hello, world. It's Mike Traverso with the Friends That Code podcast, where I get a chance to showcase some amazing people I know that just happen to write code for a living. Folks, today I have the pleasure of speaking with someone who many of you know from his many speaking engagements from around the world. I've known him for about two DevFests ago, uh, 2016 and 17, and he's been incredibly kind to hang out for a bit and talk to us today. Today's guest was going to school to study music uh, for an intro to music technology classes final exam. He had to write a website to promote himself. So instead of being lazy and creating the site using a what you see is what you get tool, like everyone else in the class did, he went and learned HTML, CSS, and some JavaScript and built his own site from scratch. Really lazy, right? So with an aptitude for web development, he started his development career creating WordPress templates. Fast forward a bit, and he's one of the most popular creators on CodePen and one of the most sought after names on the conference circuit. Given his natural ability to deliver a talk, he's found himself giving talks throughout America as well as Europe and Asia. A lot of the time you'll hear him talking about his love of animation and how that's pushed him to recreate animations he's seen and create some of his own wonderful animations with mostly CSS and HTML. You may already be familiar with Alex the CSS Husky or the CSS Responsive House. Animations written with very little, if not any, JavaScript. And he creates and gives talks on animation because it's something he deeply enjoys. From that comes his latest creation and what you'll probably hear him talking about nowadays. Today's guest created XState, a library for creating, interpreting, and executing finite state machines. As an engineer at Microsoft, today's guest codes in JavaScript, TypeScript, Python, C-sharp, and Scala. But he's not just well-versed in tapping on a keyboard to write some code. He's also familiar with another set of keys. Today's guest is really good at playing the piano. Developer, conference speaker, author, JavaScript framework creator, Twitch streamer, and moonlighting piano player. Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is David Korshid. David, thanks for hanging out today. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Excellent. So I've interviewed a few people for this show uh, so far, and I'm not sure I've interviewed anybody that's had as prolific, a you know, that is a prolific content creator as much as you are. <laughs> I mean, let's say, so you've written for CSS-Tricks, you have a newsletter, you've written a JavaScript type, uh, TypeScript framework, you stream a Twitch show, you speak at conferences, and you're also a musician. That's a really impressive amount of work. I mean, do you find time to just sit still? Uh, yeah, I, I actually try to find as much time as possible to sit still. Like everything that I talk about and write about is just helping other developers become as lazy as me. Because you know, my, my goal is just to be as lazy a developer as possible. In fact, if I could spend every day just um, playing piano, then that's what I would do. So Excellent. I mean, do you, do you, get a, you still get a lot of time, though, to play the piano? Or do you? I, I do somewhat, yeah. Um, you know, I, I try to find time before or after work. A lot of that time is taken up by open source, but... Uh, it, it's important to prioritize and, you know, I have a dog. Um, so I'll play with my dog, play piano and just do some things to take my mind off coding. I think it's really important to do yeah. that. Yeah. hundred percent agree with you there. Uh, so were you, were you naturally this creative as a kid or was it, I mean, you know, when you talk about you know, your animations and, 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 and playing the piano, that, that's a, that takes a certain amount of creativity. 
Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know about creativity. I mean, um, when I was a kid, I I really loved math for whatever reason, and it's just the uh, the idea that you could manipulate numbers and equations and formulas and just try to find patterns and things. And so, uh, music lends itself really well to that too, because there's a lot of patterns in music. And in fact, figuring out pieces like how to play them, how to position your fingers. That's a lot of um, creative thinking as well, plus how to make it sound musical. And so carrying that over to code is, um, you know, something where creativity really, really plays a major role as well, because uh, there's no like, oh, make a shopping cart app. Okay, there's these very specific steps on how to do it. No, you have to be creative with the constraints that you are provided and uh, just seek out different solutions. So you know, I think that development is a creative, um, you know, another, just another creative outlet for me too. Cool. You know, speaking of a, a, a creative outlet, right. You know, I mentioned earlier, you do a lot of speaking at conferences. Mm. I mean, a simple YouTube search of your name, right. And it pulls <laughs> up a whole bunch of talks that you've given around the world. What makes you so interested in giving these talks? Because when you watch a talk that you get, you give, you're so engaged and like you, you own that room. I wouldn't know because I don't like looking myself up on YouTube. I'm like, you know what? If you're going to record me, that's fine. I'm never going to watch the video. I will let other people do that for me because uh, in reality, I'm actually pretty shy and introverted. So um, I'm glad that people enjoy the talks. And I think uh, part of it is that these are talks that I'm giving, not just to teach something, not just to talk about a trendy topic, but to talk about things that I'm actually really, really interested in. So um, at first it was animations. I used to talk a lot about uh, reactive animations with RxJS and CSS variables, just because I learned that you can combine the two together and have some really, really cool effects based on that. And then the next thing and the current thing that I'm just talking about a lot is date machines. And what's funny is I was actually rejected at many, many, many conferences because of my state machine, you know, talk or proposal. I guess they didn't want to hear about state machines for, uh, for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, honestly, to, to many people, especially people who have studied computer science, it sounds like a really boring topic. Uh, but to me, I was like, wow, there are so many things you can do with this. So uh, I just came up with a really BuzzFeed catchy clickbaits title and uh, React Rally was the first one to, uh, to accept my state machine talk. Cool. Well, I mean, so what's, what's your favorite part though, about getting to going to a conference? I mean, could we, yeah, I, obviously, you know, you, you have this passion for sharing your knowledge, right? Talking mm -hmm. about what you're passionate about, what, but what's your favorite thing about actually going to a conference? I mean, if you can remember back that far when you were able to go to a conference. <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite part about going to conferences is really the, uh, what they call the hallway track. Um, I, I always say that conferences, pe people think like, why do I have to pay hundreds of dollars for a ticket uh, when all the videos are just going to end up online free anyway? That's not the main reason you go to a conference. And especially for me, you go to learn what you need to learn. So you go to be inspired by other talks, which I am, and also uh, what's typically known as the hallway track. So being able to talk to you know other speakers and uh, people who you're inspired by, and also just people like you who have similar ideas. And so that that's something I actually really miss from, from in-person conferences that you can't really replicate one-to-one -one with 
remote conferences nowadays. Yeah, it's it's sort of um, it's sort of like you kind of get dumped into a Slack channel or something like that, and it's not. Yeah. It definitely doesn't have that same same vibe going no, into it. No, not at all. Uh, so you, you know, we talked to you about your how you were passionate about animation, and I should have asked this first, but what what got you into it? What like why are you so passionate about animation? So honestly, I believe that when when transitioning from music to you know coding animation was the natural creative outlet for just expressing something that moves over time right when you think about music it's literally something that moves and changes over time and you could change the way that it feels and you could choreograph many different parts together and just orchestrate many things animating at the same time and um so animation was just a natural fit for me to uh, to really express that. And so I loved how animation was really somewhere where you could get creative with code, uh, you know, compared to other things where it's like cut and dry. It's like, yeah. you know, reversing an array, right? There's like, you either have the array of reverse or you don't, but, yeah. you know, having something animate, there's just so many different ways of doing it. And each way feels a little bit different. So it's just me seeking that creative uh, aspect of coding. Yeah, that, that's that's what got me into doing mobile uh, development because you know after you do so much UI development for a big bank, there's only so many places you could put the button, to, <laughs> you know, and and yeah, so many colors, it's very boring. So, um, right. but so when you do your animations, though, I mean, if you go to if anybody goes to your code pen, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but it's mostly CSS and HTML. It's not there's no JavaScript to it. So why why is that? Well, historically, it's because I was really bad at JavaScript. I, I, I really focused a lot on HTML and CSS and just tried to learn as much of that as possible. And later on, I picked up JavaScript. So um, I, I remember doing a lot of jQuery, but I just remember um, discovering all the different things you could do with CSS. And this was also at a time where CSS was gradually gaining more and more features like Flexbox, CSS Grid, and especially CSS Variables, which... You know, right when I thought, okay, I need to use JavaScript for this, I then said, you know what? We could try CSS variables and see if it works with that. Um, so, I, I, and honestly, it's also a personal challenge to me too. Uh, there's this idea called the creativity of constraints um, where being constrained to something actually makes you think more creatively. And so by limiting myself to seeing what I could do with just HTML and CSS, Honestly, um, the the only reason I know as much HTML and CSS as I do, and I don't know as much as like other experts out there, like uh, Lever and you know other people like that, um, is because I constrain myself to not use JavaScript and just stick with those. I, I love this theme that keeps kind of coming back, where it's the reason why you're you know, you're good at something is because you're just kind of lazy at something else you like you, you see that there's this laziness in you and you kind of say well i'm going to do it this other way and you end up learning so much more you know going down that other path as opposed to kind of learning this other thing so you right it, it's that, that's really fascinating um so we talk about animations and some of the stuff you've posted you've got alex the css husky you've got the css responsive house you know when you want to work on an animation like what and you talk about creativity and kind of music. What's your, how do you start your process? Where, how do you go from 
oh, I want to make a bouncing animated house to, okay, I'm posting this animated house I made on CodePen. Where's the process if you, if you have one? So, um, I mean, it's a very uh, loose process, not really strictly defined, but sure. uh, we, we actually condense this process a lot on the keyframers, which is our, you know, our stream that we do about every week or every other week. Um, where basically when we have an animation in mind, whether it's recreating something or starting from scratch, uh, we think of them in various stages. And then we sort of storyboard the idea and be like, okay, there's going to be a part where, you know, for example, the bouncing house, it's stretching. And then um, just having various states for each of the rooms, like the, the bouncing house animation has like, I think three to five rooms. So there's a different, you know, uh, like a storyboard panel for each one of those things. And then uh, animation is just filling that uh, that transition from one state to the other state. And that's our that's our methodical approach to to doing that. And it works pretty well. Very cool. We're gonna get to more of the keyframers in a little bit, but I, I'm sticking on this kind of this this theme of you know getting into the animation part. Where do you suggest folks that have a love of animation, say, and they're beginning to learn it, and maybe it's with CSS, maybe it's with JavaScript, maybe it's with SpriteKit, um, whatever. Where do you suggest folks start? And, and maybe what what is the biggest concept that they need to understand when they think about animation? Uh, the, there are a lot of concepts to, uh, to really understand. There, there's a lot of parts to animation. There's uh, duration, there's easing, there's um, delays, uh, there's, um, you know, just thinking in terms of transitions versus keyframe animations. I mean, there are a lot of things. The way that I really learned the animation, though, was I didn't start from the technological aspect. I didn't start by researching everything there was to know about CSS animations or JavaScript animations. Instead, um, finding the animation that you like, like on Dribble or Behance or uh, even sometimes on uh, Vimeo, I'll see like these cool UI concepts or just random animations that I really want to recreate. And then even if you think it's insurmountable, just give it a go and try to animate it. You'll quickly run into a wall where you're like, I have no idea how to do this particular part of the animation. And that's where you start doing all of your Googling and your discovery about different techniques that you could do. And then you try them out and um, that's sort of the iterative process on um, just creating an animation. So um, a lot of tutorials nowadays, they go the other direction. They start from, here's everything you need to know about CSS animations. Here's everything you need to know about, um, I don't know, frame or motion or whatever animation, like GSAP or whatever tool you want to use. But I think starting from the reverse in, like starting with what you want your end product to be, I think that's a better motivator, at least for me, uh, and a better way to learn the concepts involved. I mean, I agree with that. You know, I learned animation from watching, I mean, I'm going to date myself, but the old Disney VHS movies, um, I would watch them and I, cause I used to draw a lot and I would watch them and I would freeze frame, draw mm -hmm. still, try, I mean, try as best I could with a VHS right. recorder, uh, you know, a VHS, whatever, what they're calling them now. Uh, that's how I've gotten. <laughs> but but play yeah. the VHS tape just a little bit more so I can get that next frame, and then you see where how things are moving. Uh, because they, I mean, if you're going to learn figure animation from anybody, 
learning some of these things without really understanding, you know, timing, you know, easing, all those things, you're, you're seeing it, you're not knowing it's what it's called, but you're seeing it and you're learning it that way. So that's, that's kind of, that's how I was doing it a long time ago. Um, and I'm definitely not as good as, it, as I am, as you are <laughs> for sure. But, um, okay. So we, we know that animation is kind of, is very thoroughly used in games, right? And what we may not know is that games rely heavily on state machines. People think, oh, a video game always interacts with the player, but it really interacts with time itself more so than the player. And the player is kind of entering input along a time path. Right. So, you know, we get to that concept of state machines. And with that said, you, you know, you've been working on something really cool. Uh, you spent a few years now creating the XState framework, right? Mm -hmm. Why should I be thinking of state machines, though, with respect to an app that I may be building? What is the benefit for me? Well, simply put, state machines are pretty much everywhere. Um, if you have an app, you're bound to have, or at least for any non-trivial app, you're bound to have like something where you know you're going to put is loading or something in there, or you're going to have an app that goes through various modes or various stages or something that's dependent on a status like a loading status or even something where you have to orchestrate between this has to load first and then you have to load this you know like sort of a workflow thing all of this can be described with state machines and all of this is essentially a state machine already and so um what's problematic is that we don't really talk about state machines uh, when we think about modeling our application, because we don't talk about modeling our application at all in the first place. We just go right to coding, adding Boolean variables everywhere and hoping for the best. Uh, but state machines provide that structure for coding. And a lot of us are doing state machines without even you know knowing it. Uh, for example, if you work on a mobile or native application, you might have some uh, what, what's called user flows or uh, you know, wireframe diagrams with arrows pointing to when the user clicks login, it shows this loading thing and then it goes to this screen. That's a state machine already. And so state machines are a mathematical formalism for describing exactly that sort of thing. And if we're not thinking about our app in terms of state machines, then we're sort of implicitly doing state machines anyway. And the downfall of that is we're going to be missing a lot of things. So we might be accidentally introducing impossible states or impossible transitions, um, or we might just be forgetting to include certain transitions. Um, th there was a story where I, I was so frustrated because I was in another country and uh, th there was this mobile ticketing app and um, I tried to enter my credit card information, but it didn't work for whatever reason. It just said like declined or something like that. And there was no exit state out of that like once i was in that screen where it showed the error they didn't think to put a back button or try again or something you literally had to close and reopen the app in order to try again or use a different method and so i think that happens more often than we think with users using our apps and that's because we don't think of the various states and transitions in our applications yeah, and, and that's an incredibly unfortunate user experience oh yeah because when you have something <laughs> like that people don't tend to want to come back in. I mean, unless they absolutely need whatever it is that right. is on that page, they just, yeah, no, never mind. Moving on, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So tell us though, what what is your framework, right? And how can it help me as a developer? 
Right, so it's more of a library than a framework, and XState is just an implementation of state machines and state charts. Uh, if you look at other state machine libraries in JavaScript, there are there are plenty of them. There's one called JavaScript State Machine. There's um, a few others. Um, you know, it's definitely not a new concept. Right. You know, state machines have been around for almost a century, actually. So there's bound, like any language that you work with, there are going to be state machine libraries. So with XDates, what I, uh, or what we try to do, we have a few contributors on the project, is we don't invent anything. Everything is based on two sources of truth. Uh, the first source of truth is the original paper by uh, David Harrell, who invented state charts in 1989. And uh, he, he wrote a series of papers just describing the semantics of state charts, which are an extended model of finite state machines that encompasses a lot more. But uh, it still has equivalence to state machines mathematically. Uh, and also a spec called SCXML, which was... Um, published in 2015, and it's a W3 accepted spec. So, um, you know, it, it's as official as it gets, and it hasn't changed for, you know, well, for half a decade. So all of our decisions that we make and all of the compatibility is based on that spec. Very so, cool. yeah. And one of the things I want to mention as well is that you've got this visualizer, right, that goes along with the library that, you're, you know, you can examine your state machine outside of your app. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about putting some of my older games back into the, the app stores. And I think of w one of the things that I'm going to do is create a state machine for one of the games that I do and blog about it because drawing a state machine can really be a pain. And like you said, yeah. you might miss states. Um, there's all kinds of tools for it, but they're really clunky. Um, and it's really not easy to do with a video game. It's easy to do with a regular UI UX that you'd have with, you know, whether it's iOS or Android plenty of buttons to replicate. But if you're doing a game, it's very difficult. So I draw pretty sloppily sometimes when I'm doing something like that. And, you know, having a visualizer is just going to be a game changer uh, because I can write code that I can build my state machine, right? And then test it before I go off and actually start building it with Swift or Kotlin. And mm -hmm. that's just such a huge, uh, huge win because I know every, I know where everything's going to go. I can test it, look and see where things are. So that's really cool. So just for that alone, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and if, I, and if I'm a developer, right, what other libraries or, I guess, languages does X8 play nice with? Well, currently, it's just JavaScript. Uh, X8's written in TypeScript, so if you're using TypeScript, then uh, it works with that, too. With that said, since there is a spec, thankfully, and I didn't write the spec, what's nice about the uh, the SCXML, which stands for State Chart XML, by the way, uh, spec, is that, um, well, besides being really, really thorough, number one, there's already implementations in other languages for it. And number two, there's some pseudocode algorithms that describe uh, the various workings of you know different parts of the spec or at least how things should work. And so with that, I started on XState Python. So um, XState Python is another library that fits the XML spec and looks very much like XState for JavaScript. Someone else is working on XState Swift. Someone else is working on a C-sharp version. And you know th this is also in addition to all the other languages that already have like an SCXML compatible um, framework or library. So 
eventually the goal is for it to support many different languages because you're describing your logic in a way that it could be represented in either XML or JSON, which, you know, realistically any language could support. Right. Right. And, you know, so talking about state machines and talking about animations and, and, you know, you have a newsletter, it's called stately mm -hmm. and you keep the state machine theme going and you've got great articles and topics related to state machines. Uh, so for example, right. Uh, how to avoid ordering a dozen Teslas, <laughs> uh, or how to steal some cruise ship Wi-Fi. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Tell us about that last one for a minute, because I I that you know, I was reading through your um, the newsletter and I thought that was probably one of the coolest ones, and I think it's a, a big lesson for developers to learn because otherwise they could have their Wi-Fi stolen. Uh, so um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that story. Right, uh, that was a a couple years ago. I was on the well, I, I don't want to mention the cruise line because hopefully they <laughs> still have the same. Bug. So if anyone decides to go on the cruise line, they could just try it. But um, yeah, I I was um, that that was the time where I I took time off work, but I was still doing a side project. So I still needed internet, but I also needed internet on my phone because I needed to you know communicate with my family on the cruise as well. And for each connection, it cost eighty dollars, which is pretty Whoa. expensive. Uh, you know, cruise Wi-Fi can be expensive, so. Um, it, it has this thing that detects, okay, you registered with a device, we're checking the connection, all right, here's an access code, and then you use that access code to, you know, to gain Wi-Fi. And so, um, obviously, if you try to do it with two devices separately, it's like, hey, one device is already registered under your name, so you have to pay for another one. Uh, but then I thought, because there is that state where you're checking the device to see if it's registered already or if there's another one registered, if you do two devices at the same time, then both will know that no device has been registered yet. So it will say, okay, you're good. Any one of those devices can be used. And so uh, with that race condition, that allowed me to have Wi-Fi in both devices at the same time. Brilliant. So, I mean, if you want to, uh, I, I, I encourage everybody to sign up for uh, David's newsletter and I'll put the link to that in the show notes because this way you'll be able to follow along and learn how to steal cruise ship Wi-Fi. <laughs> and that's really what this podcast is about. Right. Um, no, the, the, there's actually a lot of uh, nifty tricks that once, once you start thinking about state machines, then a lot of things, I, I don't want to call them hacks, but things become obvious. I, I don't know if you play VR, um, have you played that game, uh, super hot? No. Okay. So it's a game where basically time moves in slow motion and you have to attack things before they attack you. But the faster you move, the faster time moves. It's a really cool game. I'm not much of a gamer, but I found that game really fun. And, um, there, there, there is a, uh, you know, another type of race condition thing that, you know, you, you immediately think, okay, if I drop a weapon and it switches the level, then I could grab that weapon really quick. And like, because of that race condition, now you have that weapon in the other level, whereas you might not have that weapon at all. So, yeah, that's cool. Maybe so, I'll talk about that in another <laughs> newsletter, but yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. Um, so, you know, I see you're wearing the, the uh, nobody else can see this cause <laughs> it's an audio podcast, but I see you're wearing the keyframers uh, t-shirt there. And you're one half of the keyframers, mm -hmm. uh, and it's you know it's a show that you and your enemy go 
Stephen Shaw. You Stephen guys Shaw, stream it. Yeah. Yep. You guys stream it on Twitch. Uh, you know, and, and just for folks listening who don't know, it's uh, these streams, you guys both pair program some really cool animations and user interfaces. Again, where do you guys find the time to create this content? Because it's, <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, first of all, it's a big show yeah. and there's a lot of content in it. Where do you, where, where do you find the time to be doing all of this work? So uh, one of the great things about how we structure the keyframers is that it's all, it's, it's a challenge for us. Like someone says, Hey, try to do this animation or we'll find an animation on dribble. And we do absolutely no preparation ahead of time. We just say, okay, okay. This is what we're doing at 5 PM Eastern. Um, <laughs> and we just go for it, try to do it within one or two hours and that's it. Um, so hopefully in the future, we are looking to do more tutorial based, more premium content, and actually plan out videos. But Again, that requires free time. That requires 30 hours in a yeah. day, which we don't have. Uh, but, you know, maybe one day. And do you guys take requests for which animations you'd want to see, kind of like Honest Trailers? Uh, we do. We do. Yeah. So um, Where we can folks submit those? On Twitter or wherever you find us, on YouTube comments. Um, Twitter is probably the main okay. uh, way for us to know. Okay, excellent. Uh, so, so, you know, I mentioned before you well, we we just talked about this. You guys stream it on Twitch, uh, and you mentioned it is every Monday night at five PM Eastern. Uh, yeah, but, almost every Monday night. So it, it, it's flexible. Right. Yeah, right, right. So, but if it's Monday night and it's five PM and you're on Twitch, check try to find them out. They'll or they'll YouTube. probably be there. Yeah, yeah. So so we started animating more on YouTube. Or, right. You know, just doing the YouTube streaming, just because we upload all of our videos to YouTube and we try to make short snippets of the the important lessons and takeaways from each one of the videos. So you don't have to sit through a two hour video. But oh, regardless, cool. if you miss our streams, they're going to be on YouTube. If you could direct potentially a new subscriber to the show or the YouTube channel, right? Where what would the session be? What where would you direct folks? What's your or what's your favorite episode of the show? What's that been so far? Oh, let's go um, with that. What's your favorite episode of the show so far? <laughs> Favorite episode? Uh, I don't know. There have been so many episodes. In fact, I think we did like over, you know, over a hundred by now. Yeah, because you guys um, have been doing them for a while. But okay, yeah, so what's yeah. been the most challenging animation? What's I mean, if you just close your eyes, what's the one that sticks out as being mm -hmm. the biggest pain? Oh gosh, I I can't even tell you. Okay. <laughs> there, there have been so many. In fact, there have been ones where we thought, oh, this is going to be really challenging, and then we end up completing it in half an hour. We're like, oh. Wait, we're already done. Show's like, there over. we go. <laughs> yeah. So we, each episode has its own unique challenges. And uh, the episodes also build off the other ones. So we'll talk about like, hey, we did a technique in this last episode and we're going to use it in this one. And, you know, that makes things a bit easier too. Very cool. Again, folks, the YouTube link and the Twitch link will also be in the show notes. So don't fret. I'm not, I'm not holding any information out for you. You don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to Google David and find it. And I'll put it in the show notes. Um, so David, I mentioned uh, back in the intro that you play the grand piano, right? So I go on the internet and I can find videos of all sorts of talks you've given from around the world, Singapore, Europe, um, keyframers, <laughs> articles, your code, your, your code pen stuff. Um, but finding a video of you playing the piano, it's as if you've scrubbed it all off the internet. <laughs> um, so, and I, I know, I know there was one video I found, I actually found one video and I couldn't, ref I couldn't find it again, hmm. um, where you were in a, a 
you know, you were in a concert with two other musicians. Hmm. Can't find it again. Oh. But do, so where, so again, we're getting back to the, you know, playing the piano part. Are you able to find a way then to get, well, actually, yeah. Hold on a second. Let's get back to the scrubbing it off the internet. Are you scrubbing these videos off the internet? No, absolutely not. Um, okay. In fact, we on the keyframers, we do on occasion these keys and code uh, type shows where uh, Stephen Shaw creates an audio visualization using Canvas and or CSS variables and you know CSS um, and the Web Audio API. And I will play piano at the same time. And those are actually really fun because I do take requests and. I'll just try to play them live. Cool. Well, like I said, moonlighting piano player. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want to get into some kind of some looking back kind of retrospective questions where you look back and um, you give us some advice. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. We talked about a little bit of your earlier career. What were some of the challenges that you struggled with coming up as a software developer? Uh, some of the challenges, um, I mean, just being a software developer in general just has its daily challenges. Um, personally, not being able to do what you, uh, want to do being a software developer, especially the more experience you gain, the more hats you have to wear. Um, so right now I am knee deep in, you know, things like Kubernetes, Terraform infrastructure, things that, um, I would definitely not call my areas of interest, but things that are still necessary and crucial to the everyday operation of the software that you work on every day. So yeah, and just uh, just having the mental capacity to learn all of that stuff and retain that knowledge, it feels like every day there's a new thing that you have to learn. And so you know you have to prioritize or seek out libraries that automate as much as possible from that. So um, yeah, I guess just the amount of things you have to learn. Well, you mentioned you mentioned that you know the learning part, and and there's sometimes you'll hit a wall and you'll you'll not know something where you need to know it in order to move forward. Sometimes that could, if you deal with that enough, right? If you're constantly coming up a wall, a bunch of walls where it's like, okay, I don't know this, I don't know this, and sometimes we we call that you know the imposter syndrome, like wait, you know, right? Because you get stuck in that little bit of utility almost where it's like, I can't get anything done because I keep hitting these walls and I keep having to get going back to Google or going back to documentation, or I'm not getting things as, as much done as I'd like to. Mm -hmm. Do you ever deal with that? Oh, all the time. All the you, time. Absolutely. What do you do? What do you do to kind of break out of that funk? Or is there something that you, that just, it just, is it time? Is it, do you do something actively? Uh, you honestly have to take joy in learning. You can't, I, I think it's a common thing and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a common thing for developers to think if I'm learning on the job, I'm not really being productive because I'm not coding, but yeah. I feel like the coding is the least important part of the job. The coding is just what gets the job done, but all of the work goes into the thinking and being able to model and plan how you're going to accomplish the solution. And then once you actually have the solution, the code is just a way to implement the solution. The code isn't the solution. It's a way to, you know, put, and, and so it might very well be the wrong solution too. And, you know, no amount of code will save that. So, um, but so, there's always learning in that. That's the thing. Like there's yeah. always, you know, like you said, in, in learning, you have a solution, whether it's the right one or not, it's something that yeah. you then learn. And then the next time, you know, you're, it's, you're, 
it's essentially you're building your own um, AI, if you will, right? <laughs> when, you, when you talk about yeah. it, it's it's not technical, it's but biological. And you know, the more you learn, the better you are at it. So I agree with you. It's the learning is important and folks kind of just need to take a deep breath and understand where they're going to end up. Not so much in the, that stressful moment of, oh my gosh, nothing's working and I can't figure right. it out. What do I do? Yeah. And I also think um, pair programming is actually extremely useful. Like taking a look, whether it's in person, well, you know, virtually in person, right? There's tools like VS Live Share to do that whole remote coding collaboration thing, okay. uh, or also just watching Twitch or YouTube streams of people coding and just seeing their thought process. It really reveals a lot to you. Like I'll, you know, when I was, you know, a younger coder, junior developer, I would look at this complex, you know, piece of code and be like, I can't even fathom how they got to that solution. Like in my mind, they're just coding it line by line. Like they know exactly what they're doing. And then um, when I witness other people more senior than me, or even when I code myself, I'll realize that that's not the way it works at all. It's very much, I, I want to call it error-driven development. You'll try one thing, have an error, Google the error, okay, it should be that way. And then you change a few things and then eventually you get to your final solution, but it's not a sequential thing. You're going back and you're changing so many things. And so that's the behind the scenes sort of, you know, view of it. Yeah. And like you, like you mentioned, like when you buy a book or you buy a video course or whatever it is that there's so much polish that has gone into that. Mm -hmm. Nope. Someone didn't just pick up a pen and start writing that. And right. then like, that's the, you know, they had all of this. No, not even close. Nope. Here's what probably happened. They were starting to write that book. Um, and you know, they had a solution to something and then their technical editor found, found an error, which then caused them to then rewrite that and then rewrite a whole bunch of other things in that chapter where they had to go back and edit. Yeah. And so, you know, don't think that that published product or that whatever it is that you may see on Twitter, that's something, uh, it's basically, it's not whatever, whatever you see is not the first edition of that. It's been polished multiple times. So yeah. Um, don't, don't beat yourself up too much. Right. What you mentioned about pair programming. I, I had an interesting situation with pair programming where I always found it to be intimidating as a junior developer. Cause when I was a junior developer, uh, I did some pair programming and it was just very intimidating watching the senior developer kind of who knew more of the database schema than I did just kind of like pull things out and like, here, it's this, this, and this, and boom. And maybe it's right. just because that was the situation. I didn't, you know, it wasn't a, as useful. But like I said, I've watched a few episodes of the Keyframers and watching you guys go back and forth, mm -hmm. watching something like that, because you're getting, you're, you're understanding that whole flow. So that's a, there, there's useful pair programming sessions. And then there's some not so. <laughs> pair programming. Right. And that that's why I feel pair programming has to be, as much about teaching as it is about doing. Like if you're like, okay, and then you just add this here, add this config setting, that's not enough. You have to explain why you're adding it, um, what issues you ran into when you didn't add it, et cetera. Yeah. And for a manager who's out there listening to this thing and that, well, if I do, if I allow pair programming, that means it's going to take longer to get something done. Well, yes, but now you're going to have two developers who understand how that's done instead exactly. of one. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Okay, what do you wish you knew when you were younger? Anything. Could be anything. Doesn't have to be related mm -hmm. to technology. <laughs> what I wish I knew when I was younger. Um just 
uh, man, that's a that's a hard question. That's like one of those job interview questions where you're like, where will you be in five years? Or something like that. Well, I, you know, it's, it's not a job <laughs> interview, but we'll see if you get right, it. Right, right. <laughs> um, I wish I knew uh, just how much time not working mattered. Um, just how much time you spend with your family and your friends and your dog. Like there's, there's this whole hustle culture right now where people are like, if you're not coding 30 hours a day, then you aren't going to be the best. And um, honestly, I code less than people think I code what I need to for work. I code maybe a, you know, an hour or two for my open source software and just things I experiment on. And then I try to take as much free time as possible, whether it's, you know, going for walks with my dog, working out, hanging out with my girlfriend, uh, building Lego. I love building Lego stuff Nice. <laughs> or, uh, practicing the piano and just, um, you know, that that's the, that's where you do your most thinking. And, uh, it's just knowing that there's more to life than, you know, than just trying to hustle 24 seven. And I think earlier on in my career, I was very much a workaholic. I would wake up at 6am and just go to a Starbucks and, you know, work on a project, uh, you know, one of my side projects, not X date, but just something, uh, much more useless. And, uh, just, just do that for hours and hours just because I thought that you needed to code as much as possible to be better than everyone else. And that's absolutely not true. No. And there's something to be said, like when you're younger, you've got the energy to put into something like that. But, you know, as you get older, you should be realizing that there are more important things that you should be doing with your time. And like you said, spending time with family, spending time with your dog, you know, understanding that there is more important things. And then there's that whole there's been this meme going around, which is, you know, do you code like this? And where you know, <laughs> someone's got all of their GitHub boxes oh, yeah. colored various colors of green. That means and nothing. <laughs> it really doesn't. I mean, because, you know, if we, I mentioned this before in another episode, whereas nobody in an interview, a job interview is going to ask you, well, how long did it take you to learn this concept? They don't. No one cares. It's how right. do you, it's, do you know the concept? And can you explain it to me? And that's it. So if you've been coding every day and making all these check-ins, that's great. I mean, if that's your thing, go for it. But you don't, you shouldn't feel like that's what you have to be doing. I just right. want to make that point because you, you don't, no one cares really, except you. And that, like, <laughs> if that's like I said, but if that's your jam, then go for it. So, yeah. Yeah. And my, you know, my GitHub thing is mostly green. I mean, you'll see some white squares during the weekend where obviously I, I won't code anything. I try not to have a streak and I'm really glad that GitHub got rid of that streak thing too, because it was proving oh, toxic yeah. and they knew that. And I think they could go a step further because the whole green square thing is just, um, it, it's still, you know, it, it doesn't mitigate that problem really. Um, but you know, a lot of those green squares are just like, I'm reviewing someone's PR. I'm like, well, that looks good. I'll just merge that. Or, oh, I should update the readme for this. And then that's like a five minute job. And then I have my green square of the day. So <laughs> it's not really showing that I'm a, you know, a heavy programmer just doing all this complex stuff. Right. And, you know, there's folks that work in, um, the banking or finance industry. Uh, me personally, I work for a major league baseball team. And so the, there are certain companies that don't allow you to code outside of your job, right? Well, they, they, you can code outside of your job, but you can't open source anything. Yeah. Which because is a shame. 
<laughs> right. So from someone like me who has a 20 years of experience, I have very little green boxes. <laughs> so it's like, if you're comparing me to somebody who does a whole lot of updating of a readme file, I mean, I'm going to lose out in that interview if that's the qualification is green boxes. So, right. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're lost, right? <laughs> yeah. Not, you know, it, that, working for a place that values green boxes is a bit weird, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David, what's the one thing you do to escape and clear your mind from writing code, writing articles, new talks, or maybe just technology in general? I practice piano. <laughs> so Perfect. that's, that's the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. These, are the <laughs> yeah so these are the questions here. I ask everybody. Right. So if we've covered this before, yeah, you don't, mm -hmm. we've, we've covered you and we do, if anybody has video of David playing the piano. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I have some tweets of it. I, I have some tweets. Someone asked okay. me to do a, uh, a nice sweet version of cotton eye Joe. And I did. And so someone requested that I play a serene version of um, of Never Gonna Give You Up, Rick Astley. Oh, so nice. I Rickrolled everyone. <laughs> and so there's at least two tweets of me playing piano, and you could look those up. <laughs> Excellent. I won't ask you what you thought of our intro music, but... Um, <laughs> uh, no comment. But, <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks in our profession, they don't get a lot of opportunities to promote themselves. Here's a chance for you to promote yourself. What about yourself are you most proud of, love the most, or used to inspire confidence in yourself? Oh, geez, I, I don't know. I'd rather, um, you know, promote others. Like, there's not much about myself. Ah, uh, no, no, yeah, I can't. That's a cop out. So, so the reason I asked this question, let me explain why I asked this question. I asked this question because I want people who are maybe dealing with imposter syndrome to be able to find something in themselves that they can see, they can, they can see there's, there's a whole bunch of value in, in whatever it is that they're doing. Right. So mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, let's just take me for example, one of the big things that I'm most proud of is that I've beaten cancer twice. Right. So wow. that's something, that's something that is, is a big deal for me. And I know that if I could do that, then like, okay, this API is not working right, right now. So I, I'll deal with that. That's not a challenge. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, I'm not talking about that level of, of, you know, of a challenge that you've overcome, but just something that you've overcome and that you're most proud of that you'd share with other folks or that because you've overcome, because you've overcome that challenge, you're not afraid of other challenges. Well, okay. I, I would say the one thing that I am happiest about and most proud of myself for is just bringing this idea of um, finite state machines and state charts to the masses because a lot of people were, you know, they would come to me and they would say, hey, I am so glad that you've given so many talks on this and you developed the X state library because this has really changed the way I think and it's made me a more productive and a more efficient developer. I'm able to model my software and our bugs have gone way down and just hearing that makes me really excited because I'm not just releasing a library where people are going to complain like, Hey, this doesn't do the thing I want. It's more like, Hey, you forced me to learn a fundamental computer science concept. And so I'm really, really glad that I made it in a way that's approachable to developers. That's so. awesome. Yeah. And, and a lot of, you know, you start to see it. There's, there's been this paradigm shift of software developers coming more out of boot camps than traditional four year, you know, bachelor studies, um, courses. So, 
you don't necessarily tend to focus so much on state machines over a four to eight month course uh, in, in a boot camp. And I think that, you know, having this library and having all the, I mean, all the documentation that goes along with this is incredible. Uh, the visualizer on top of it so that you can visualize what it is that you've built and evaluate, hey, is this doing the right thing? Again, like you said, state machines is a hard concept to understand. Uh, and the fact that you've built this and all the accoutrement uh, with it, <laughs> it, 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 it really kind of helps hammer home some of the concepts. So, you know, on behalf mm -hmm. of, of those folks, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Excellent. Uh, so David, I mean, I, if, do, do you have anything else? Cause I'm, I'm you, we've boom, we've wrapped, <laughs> we've, we've lightning through these questions. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share with the world right now? Or the well, 25 subscribers <laughs> that I have got. Well, I I just released the first part of, um, you know, speaking of state machines, I'm going to be working on a lot of state machine tooling again on my free time. Hopefully I'll have more free time to work on it. Uh, but it's at statecharts.io. And that's going to be the future home of just everything state machine and state chart related. Because I want it to be so much bigger than a small JavaScript library. I want it to be... Uh, basically a community where we could share uh, machines and different ways of modeling software and um, just visually create and inspect uh, our application logic. So statecharts.io. Cool. You heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> David, I hope you had some fun hanging out today. I did. I absolutely did. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Uh, so for folks out there that are interested in hearing more from David, you can follow him on Twitter at, at David K Piano or check out some of his animations on CodePen uh, at codepen.io slash David K Piano. Or if you want to keep up with the latest animation techniques that David and uh, Mr. Shaw are working on, check out Keyframers on Twitch live most Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern uh, mm -hmm. with older episodes being posted to the Keyframers YouTube channel. And as you just heard, state uh, statecharts.io. Uh, is also another site that you can go to for all things State Machine. Uh, and links to all of this and more, we're going to put them in the show notes so you don't have to go and look for them. So thank you again, David, uh, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're on a bunch of your favorite platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Anchor, and more. So go ahead and subscribe and tell your friends, because next week we'll have another amazing guest that I know that just happens to write code for a living. Until then, be well, everyone. <laughs>